Welcome to Foibles, where my mom and I record conversations we have anyway. I'm Zoe. I'm Zoe's mom. Oh yeah, that's right. I have a name. It's Frida. (laughs) Well, hello, Foiblers. We're back again with Jane Austen, a rich topic. Now, we have to let you know, we have already recorded this episode and it just did not meet our standards. So for you, we're going to re-record and do it better. Starting out fresh on a sunny day, so it'll be better for it. Now, last episode, we did talk about Jane Austen, her life, her influences, uh, things that were important to her, some of the myths and legends about her love life. And uh, today, we're actually going to be moving into the works which are going to be discussing Sense and Sensibility, Pride and Prejudice. Uh, If you haven't read them, we recommend both of them. You should read them both. They're very rich, very great books. Also, where we ran afoul in our last uh, recording was trying to give a synopsis of the books. And once we dug into that, found out it's actually kind of complicated. Even though the plot itself is not particularly complicated, the interrelationships and the uh, effects on the characters upon each other are actually pretty complicated. So uh, we're just going to do a really quick little synopsis of each book, just, just really small, uh, and then sort of fill out some of the incidents as we talk about the themes of the book. So if you haven't read them, you're not going to really get a plot summary. So I suggest either you, again, read the book first or read a, read a plot summary online that will kind of give you what, what the plot is. Because otherwise, we're just going to take up a whole bunch of time that most of you have read these books that so would be really boring. So there we go. So we're going to start off a couple things. I just kind of want to start off with, um, <clears throat> before we get into the plot issue, is just some information about money at the time. Because money, as we said last time is the driving force. I mean, Jane Austen kind of like a new Marx, right? Yeah, <laughs> maybe. Yeah, she certainly the plots and the relationships revolve around economics in a very straightforward way because the characters are always talking about it. How much do they make a year? Where do their assets come from? Who's inheriting what? What does that mean that they have to do uh, to survive or have a lifestyle that meets their you know suits them? Right, and it's so interesting is that it's common knowledge what everybody makes in the upper echelons. It's sort of like, how do they know this? That's a good question, actually. How do they know that Darcy has 10000 a year? So clearly it's uh, these things are either because she's the narrative, Jane just decides that she's going to throw a lot of this in so that we know. <clears throat> Even though maybe in real life you know where somebody stood, but you might not know the exact number possibly. I don't know. I don't know how it worked back then. That's actually a very good question, and now I want to know if we could find that out. Yeah. <laughs> well, if we do, we'll put an addendum in here and, and figure out how, how did she know this? Because, uh, or how would somebody have known at the time in real life what, what these people were making? Um, but there was a lot of information about people's social standing and so forth. Um, <clears throat> so you would have an idea how rich somebody was and where their money came from, for sure. Anyway, in the book, she gives the numbers. Also shows that the preoccupation that marriage was an economic uh, transaction, and we talked about how that then comes in, uh, in conflict with the new idea that marriage needs to be for love, respect, trust, and so forth. So Jane isn't just going, oh, marry for love. She's like, well, you need to love someone if they they're worthy of it. So someone who has the character and uh, deserves your respect and somebody that you can trust not just love and she also points out how characters in different positions and with different like levels of attractiveness and things like that have to make different pragmatic choices about their marriages and she's also very straightforward about the fact that no matter who you are even lizzie in pride and prejudice 
you are going to be impacted by that person's station in life. And I think, you know, I was thinking back on it, and of course, we're not a classless society here, but the classes are very much more mobile, mm-hmm. much more mobile than they were at the time. But we still are. I mean, let's face it, if somebody who was like a, a rock star or a really famous, rich actor or the vice president of the United States or a senator or somebody like that and was... Was an eligible person. Yeah, yeah. was interested in you. Wouldn't that be more, like spark more interest and attraction than if... Than the guy that is unemployed and can't seem to get it together to get a job that he cares about or something like that is interested in you. Or somebody who lives in their parents' basement and doesn't want to. (laughs) Right, exactly. So wouldn't that, I mean... It isn't a total given, right. but wouldn't that, isn't there a level of attractiveness that is created? And if we think on the other side, think men toward women, of course, we're looking at sort of the hetero, but I think it holds true in uh, other, other configurations of attraction too. So certainly when I first read it, not understanding the ways of the world as well as I do now, I poo-pooed a lot of this. Oh, that's old fashioned or was not able to sympathize or even understand really what these people were going through and how valid it was that they were considering the resources that the people in their society had. Now, Austin makes a lot of fun of people who make that all and everything and don't have any background of going, well, oh, well, this person is a worthy person because they've got a good character and they're trustworthy and this person is not but who only looks at the dollar sign. So she really lampoons that too. It's a different culture as well, and and Jane Austen is a little bit more modern or has a more objective perspective maybe on it, but at the time it was also culturally even more relevant that you thought about what you were going to pass on to your children and heredity was like very Mm -hmm. important and wanting to advance your family, which I think is not as much the case anymore, but it's still something we can relate to. You want to leave your children well off in a good position. Well, especially if you're rich. Yeah, it still matters to the rich a lot. (laughs) Yeah, that's how they amass the capital pool. Uh, And then the other thing is that uh, she also points to the fact that that, that, people who just go, oh, it's all about love. I'm just... I, I will only marry somebody if I love them and, and nothing else matters. Then she lampoons that as well. Yeah. And we see those two um, sides in Sense and Sensibility in particular in their extreme. So I just thought I'd give a little idea about what money was when we're reading, like what the numbers meant. Yeah. And uh, so basically, uh, if, if we just go back and look through the books, the rich guy in Sense and Sensibility, Colonel Brandon, he's got 2,000 pounds a year. And then uh, the, one of the other gentlemen who has no money and is going to become a curate uh, and work uh, in a parish, they said, well, it will only pay 200 pounds a year, which would just be enough for maybe him to live as a bachelor, but would not be really enough to live at that station with a wife and a family. Though, you know, if you were lower class, 200 pounds would be quite adequate and quite nice. But... And then in Pride and Prejudice, Bingley has four to 5,000 pounds a year, and his money would come from not land. He's not landed gentry. And landed gentry, just is what it sounds like. You're not a nobility. You're not a lord or lady, but you have land and old land, and you're making money off your land. But Bingley's money probably came from trade. And at this point, most likely what happens is he's not working or doing anything. He probably inherited like 100,000 pounds, and what they did is they put this money in government bonds and you get paid 4%, which would give him the 4000 he needed to live comfortably. Right, and so there's different ways people are getting income in these novels, but it's quite common in these novels that people are getting basically living off their passive income if you're mm-hmm. of a certain class status, um, living off the interest or, you know, uh, other types of returns from your investments and things. Yeah, except for somebody like Darcy, who um, he has land and he makes money on his land. So he actually steward, you know, he has a steward who actually runs and does the work day to day. But he he actually is like the king of his. People you know, pay taxes to him, and yeah, and yeah. he and he work and he does work. I mean, he has to make decisions. He has to oversee things. So there, he actually does do some work, um, but he has a lot of free time too, and. 
so Darcy has 10,000 pounds a year, so he's really got a very rich holding and very uh, productive land that he's working. As appropriate for Jane Austen's sort of pinnacle novel, he is also kind of the pinnacle uh, hero in terms of his wealth and status Yeah, and he's, he's the wealthiest of all her male uh, male uh, protagonists in all her novels. So yeah, he is definitely the pinnacle. Um, probably in, attra- well, in attractiveness if you combine it with wealth yeah. of the two. So anyway, that's kind of the money we're looking at. And then on the other hand, we don't know how much money um, the family in Pride and Prejudice has to live on, but we do know that in Sense and Sensibility, the the core family, the Dashwoods, uh, they have 500 pounds a year for the four of them to live on. And that would have been adequate, but not definitely, you know, you're looking at your budget and that kind of thing. Very humble. They're getting to rent a cottage on one of... Mrs. Dashwood, the mother's, like... Cousin. uh, Yeah, cousin's land. Right. And he's giving them a deal, probably. So basically, uh, when you're looking at the the economics of the time, like a laborer, somebody who just worked on a farm, a basic, probably the lowest working class level, would make about 15 to 20 pounds a year. Wow. Yeah. Now, you can imagine they also were housed there and they were fed. Mm -hmm. So you also have to take into account that their bed and board are taken care of and so that's additional recompense as well right and then like a successful lawyer now a successful lawyer has to pay their own bread and board and and have a carriage and all that stuff so they would probably make about 450 pounds a year so that would be a nice uh somebody who's i guess they weren't considered in trade but they worked which is anybody who works even if you make a lot of money, you're still lower, lower class than right. someone who has land. And... Exactly. And then from there going up, it, it's it's open season on what you could make if you were in trade and if you were uh, had land and how well you managed it. And, and you could look at it this way. In trade, there was no cap in, in, in the professions. But if you, you know, if you were hard-driven, and especially if you wanted to engage in trade in the colonial uh, areas, which, you know, then we're looking into, to us, some morally questionable income. For sure. For sure. And then, but land, there would be a cap. I mean, land can only produce so much. So yeah. you can make your land as productive as possible. And if you're not going to sell it, then, you know, you, you're pretty much capped off in what, you, what you're going to make. But it still could be a lot. That's what I was going to say, too, is that, of course, the level of expense differs, which we yeah. started to talk about earlier. But... For someone who's a higher class and higher status, in order to be in that class, there are expectations of you having servants and waitstaff and like certain parts of your estate that you need to keep up. So it can also be quite expensive, which is where you run into those like rich no- nobility who are just totally broke and everything. Right. And it's a very feudal system still. And there's also the noblesse oblige where you know if somebody is sick, one of your retainers is sick, if somebody, even a laborer who has a cottage there, First of all, you you know you make sure that they get a doctor. You pay them and you provide them with medical, even if they can't work, you know, to a certain extent. If they get really old, you're expected to uh, have like a little retirement thing. You know, they can, they have some place to live and they've got food to eat and they're taken care of. So you're expected to have a responsibility to the people who work with you, and it's supposed to be kind of a lifelong thing. <laughs> It's so funny because there's certain things about this society that are so cutthroat or so tenuous and everything, especially a a lady's virtue and desirability and things like that. And yet also I'm like, that sounds pretty good compared to like being in a labor force today. Yeah, right. This is not a gig economy (laughs) for the most part. You get a lot more days off too. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. There were definitely, and there was kind of a little bit of a gig economy at the time where people who were traveling laborers who would go with the harvests and so forth and, um, that because they didn't need all those people all the time. So there was a migrant workforce as well. Uh, that would be pretty hard because you probably got paid pretty well for your, your, your labor while you were doing it. But, you know, there were a lot of months of the year when it was winter and you didn't need to work. So you'd be there for the sowing and then you'd be there for the reaping. And in between, they didn't need you. So 
So there was that workforce going on as well. And there's also, this was kind of at the time, this is the, this would be the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, right? And so these do, do not occur in Jane Austen's novels, as far as I'm aware. And there would have been the factory system sort of starting up and people migrating to the city and everything. And ultimately, that's one of the things that breaks down that, that feudal, unquote, system. Because the factories, as they came into existence, even though they were horrible and, the, and a horrible uh, capitalist way of treating workers, nonetheless... It, it provided work year-round, and it was, they pay better, ultimately. And there's more freedom, because you just get your money, and then you, you live. And so it really pulled a lot of people out of the country. But still, it was a, it was a pretty good gig on the, the estates, except you kind of were available 24-7. I mean, you might get like half a day off once a week. But, you know, if, if they needed something in the middle of the night, you're expected sure. to get up and do it. Yeah. So, you know, there were, there were pros and cons with that. And also, you were very much at the behest of the landowner. And same thing with the factory worker. But at the same time, they really had a lot more power over your individual personal life in terms of what... Since they're providing your living quarters and right, all of that. Right, right. Yeah. The other thing that goes hand-in-hand hand with the Industrial Revolution at the time, in which they do mention in the books, is they talk about enclosure, mm-hmm. which was the other huge part of kickstarting capitalism. The commons were... Uh, areas of land in and around towns and hamlets and so forth and in cities that apart from the king it was the right of the people this mm-hmm. is something it's sort of like um god I'm okay to... thank you i knew i was missing a lot of context here yeah that's okay there, I, I try to think of the terminology now i i got my brain uh but it's that it's 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 similar to uh the right of of transfers over land like if someone has private property but there's a path on it like to the beach that has been publicly used for decades, then the use over those decades has created a right in the public to be able to use that path. So mm-hmm. the landowner can't just suddenly enclose it, shut it off and say, oh, you can't come here anymore. So there've been law cases about that and I cannot come up with the words, but that's what the commons were. And then what happened, as you were pointing out, during the Industrial Revolution and when land was becoming more privatized is these land, now these owners, cut off the commons, literally enclosing it with fences and saying you can't come on here anymore, you can't graze your sheep here, you can't create a garden patch here anymore. And it took away the interest in the land that the people, that the common people had. Uh, because there was, like you pointed out, no specific fee simple ownership. It was, it was land, owned, even not owned, but held in common. Right. And there were a lot of laws that were passed and so forth that changed what had been the tradition and what we would call here common law. Things are common law when they have come into tradition, they are standard, they are accepted, but they're not written into statute. Right. So they wrote statutes that overrode the, the law of the commons. Who knows? Maybe that's where it came from. Right. And, uh, and took it away. So your point is well taken. That, and then a Darcy right. would have been someone who probably enclosed land. Right. And then ultimately, you know, uh, the enclosed land would then have been available for the owner of the land to build on and stuff. So that mm-hmm. that's how you, again, go on creating wealth with the land. But, right. Um, so this is also something that they just kind of talk about in passing in certain parts of, I'm sure, various of her books. And I thought it was interesting enough to talk about. Yeah, it totally is. Also, you should point, we should point out that uh, not everyone, but a lot of the owners of the land, like a Darcy would have very strongly uh, in their DNA, if you will, that they are responsible for the people on their land. And they're responsible for the, for the um, husbandry and the maintenance of the land, uh, taking care of it, keeping it fertile, keeping it, uh, you know. In other words, so building on the land is probably not something a Darcy would do. Right. Other than maybe, oh, we need a new cook. A cookhouse, you know, that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. But uh, there's not going to be like wholesale construction because the point is is to preserve the land and the forest areas and the deer, of course, for their hunting, but still. And, and a lot of what happened, we're getting off the track, but it is interesting. And a lot of what's kind of seemed to be happening during the Regency period in particular, when we had this mobility and we had these tradespeople coming up in commerce and so forth, is a lot of the these uh, nobles, usually they were, in books shown as nobles, but they're not always, they're also landed gentry, but people who owned land, there would be these young 
lordlings coming up somehow get sucked into the circle of the Prince of Wales and also the regent. He was both the Prince of Wales and regent, I should say, the, uh, who, had, who ended up becoming George IV during this period. Anyway, he was known for his whoring and his licentiousness and his spending and his gambling. So these guys, in order to be in this circle, they would gamble. And there were some who just became, either they were so inept that they just kept gambling and gambling and gambling, or they were actually addicted and who would actually, actually gamble away every cent that they had and their land, if they could, yeah. if, they, if, if warden entailed. Yeah, awful. Yeah, so that's I just that's want a very Bronte thing yeah, to yeah, happen. Yeah. <laughs> and I really wanted to put that on the scale to show that you know there were these really opposite types operating at the time who owned land, and of course Darcy is the upscale guy, mm-hmm. and now we don't really have anybody like that. We have somebody who's of that ilk, and if if he had been an owner of land. He would have just spent it all, and that would have been Mr. Wickham and Mr. Willoughby, actually. Right. The and two the two supposedly handsome wastrels in the two novels. And so that's kind of an interesting thing, too, is that not only are Jane, Jane Austen's novels about finding, like, an ideal romantic partner or having a good station in society and stuff, but she's also kind of making her own treaty on what she thinks is right, what she thinks the best character is, mm-hmm. what's right for somebody who has the responsibility of nobility and and owning land and stuff like that kind of a fundamental baseline Uh, but as we pointed out i think and we will point out probably repeatedly even these people who have these good characters have flaws and have things that you can really dislike about them potentially and maybe never like them in the book at all but they're actually solid good people Uh, and then on the other hand these really uh, handsome wastrels or these really charming individuals who in some cases may actually have a loving heart have such fundamental flaws in their character that they cannot be relied on and they will end up causing sorrow and uh, damage to anyone at least any woman they come in contact with so just here's just a couple little introductory remarks about the novels then we'll really get into it So Sense and Sensibility is the first novel that she published, as we said before, and it basically revolves around two love triangles. She had drew a graph. At the top would be the two Dashwood sisters. So the little Dashwood family, their dad died, and they have an older brother who inherited everything, an older stepbrother, I should say, who inherited everything, and he fails to follow through on his promise to help them out financially. So they take their 500 pounds and they end up having to go off and we've got the mom and three sisters, the eldest being Eleanor, who is equated with the sense. And then we have Marianne, who's in her mid-teens, who's the sensibility. And each of them are involved in a love triangle. And so it really just kind of, that's what sets it up. That's where we go. And of course, in the end of all Austin novels, we're not giving anything away. The right connections are made in the end, marriage-wise, that work for everybody. Right. And then in Pride and Prejudice, uh, interestingly enough, we have the two sisters, but I wouldn't put them at the pinnacle, uh, even though they're a very important relationship. Really at the pinnacle is the one love story between Darcy and Elizabeth Bennet. And again, Elizabeth lives in a family. She has a dad this time, but we once again have an entailed estate that goes to the male heir. So the women, if the dad dies are going to end up like the Dashwoods in a little cottage with not very much money. And the mother is hysterical about this. She's really determined to protect her daughters from and herself from this eventuality. And she has a lot more daughters than Miss Dashwood She has does five too. daughters, yeah. So anyway, but, but really it's the playing out between Darcy, who is often equated with pride, though I disagree with this analysis, but we'll get into it, and Lizzie, as we'll call her, who is the, supposedly the prejudice. Now, within that, uh, there's no love triangles, just the two of them kind of battling it out rom-com style. And then her sister, Lizzie's sister, who is Jane, who is the beauty, there's also this parallel love story of her with Mr. Bingley. And again, there is no triangle, love triangle or anything. It's just simply um, being able to get them together and how Darcy 
interjects himself and kind of keeps them apart. But really, that's pretty much it. And the rest of it is just incident. It's character building. It's people acting on other people. And it's this great, as we talked about um, yes, last time, psychological world building by getting inside these people's heads using uh, the free indirect style. But also, I think, in just the dialogue and the way in which she positions the dialogue. And in a way, the the dialogue is kind of a variation on the free and direct style. So it isn't just the narrator telling you something and giving you those layers. It's also somebody says something, but just in the way Austin positions it in the sentence, the way it's contextualized and how it fits into the uh, inter exchange between the characters and just the words she uses coming out of the character's mouth you get levels of understanding of that character's emotions and psychology at the same time. Do you have an example you want to share? Well, I really think uh, we should talk about uh, getting right into Sense and Sensibility. There is an exchange very early in the book where John Dashwood, who is the uh, stepbrother of the Dashwood ladies, he is thinking, oh, well, I'm going to give my stepsisters and, and stepmother some money to help them out because I promised my dad on his deathbed, which is sacred, that I would help them. And it just was a general promise to help them. And so he's figuring, well, I'll give them, you know, 3000 a year or something, and or 1500 a year, whatever, some amount of money. And his wife, Fanny, just, she can't bear it. She can't let go of a dime. And now this is a guy who already has land. He already has an estate. And then he just inherited a second estate from his father. Yeah, he's really well off. He's very well off. Come on, you know. And there's just this interchange that is so... I mean, I've experienced these kinds of feelings myself over... Obviously not something as important as this, but, but it's the same kind of thing where in the moment he's like, yeah, you know, I, I want to do this. And then she's like this little devil sitting on his shoulders like... And now a, a dramatized reading of the early scene <laughs> in Sense and Sensibility, upon which John Dashwood discusses with his wife what he should leave to his, uh, or give to his recently bereaved sisters. I, Zoe will play the part of John Dashwood, <laughs> and Rita will play the part of Mrs. Dashwood. Fanny Dashwood. <laughs> it was my father's last request to me, replied her husband, that I should assist his widow and daughters. He did not know what he was talking of, I dare say. Ten to one, but he was light-headed at the time. Had he been in his right senses, he would not have given a thought of such a thing as begging you to give away half your fortune from your own child. He did not stipulate for any particular sum, my dear Fanny. He only requested me, in general terms, to assist them and to make their situation more comfortable than it was in his power to do. Perhaps it would have been as well if he had left it wholly to myself. He could have hardly supposed I should neglect them. But, as he required the promise, I could not do less than give it. At least I thought so at the time. The promise, therefore, was given and must be performed. Something must be done for them whenever they leave Norland and settle in a new home. Well then, let something be done for them, but that something need not be three thousand pounds. Consider that when the money is once parted with, it never can return. Your sisters will marry and it will be gone forever, if indeed it could ever be restored to our poor little boy. Why, to be sure, said her husband very gravely, that would make a great difference. A time may come when Harry will regret that so large a sum was parted with. If he should have a numerous family, for instance, it would be a very convenient addition. To be sure it would. Perhaps then... It would be better for all parties if the sum were diminished one half. Five hundred pounds would be a prodigious increase to their fortunes. Oh, beyond anything great. What brother on earth would do half so much for his sisters, even if really his sisters, and as it is, only half blood? But you have such a generous spirit. I would not wish to do anything mean. One had rather, on such occasions, do too much than too little. No one, at least can think that I have not done enough for them, 
even themselves, they can hardly expect more. There is no knowing what they may expect, but we are not to think of their expectations. The question is, what can you afford to do? Certainly. And I think I may afford to give them 500 pounds apiece. As it is, without any addition of mine, they will each have above 3,000 pounds on their mother's death, and a very comfortable fortune for any young woman. To be sure it is, and indeed it strikes me that they can want no addition at all. They will have 10,000 pounds divided among them. If they marry, they will be sure of doing well. And if they do not, they may all live very comfortably together on the interest of 10,000 pounds. That is very true. And therefore, I do not know whether, upon the whole, it would not be more advisable to do something for their mother while she lives rather than for them. Something of the annuity kind, I mean. My sisters would feel the good effects of it as well as herself. A hundred a year would make them all perfectly comfortable. To be sure, it is better than parting with 1,500 pounds at once. But then, if Mrs. Dashwood should live fifteen years, we shall be completely taken in. Fifteen years? My dear Fanny, her life cannot be worth half that purchase. Certainly not. But if you observe, people always live forever when there is any annuity to, pay, to be paid them. And she is very stout and healthy and hardly forty. An annuity is a very serious business. It comes over and over every year, and there is no getting rid of it. You are not aware of what you are doing. I have known a great deal of trouble of annuities, for my mother was clogged with payment of three to old superannuated servants by my father's will, and it is amazing how disagreeable she found it. Twice every year these annuities were to be paid, and then there was the trouble of getting it to them, and then one of them was said to have died, and afterward it turned out to be no such thing. My mother was quite sick of it. Her income was not her own, she said, with such perpetual claims on it. And it was the more unkind in my father, because otherwise the money would have been entirely at my mother's disposal, without any restriction. It has given me such an abhorrence of annuities that I am sure I would not pin myself down to the payment of one for all the world. Mm, it is certainly an unpleasant thing to have those kinds of yearly drains on one's income. One's fortune, as your mother justly says, is not one's own. To be tied down to the regular payment of such a sum on every rent day is by no means desirable. It Und takes away one's independence. Undoubtedly, and after all, you have no thanks for it. They think themselves secure. You do no more than what is expected, and it raises no gratitude at all. If I were you, whatever I did should be done at my own discretion entirely. I would not bind myself to allow them anything yearly. It may be very inconvenient some years to spare a hundred or even fifty pounds from our own expenses. I believe you are right, my love. It will be better that there should be no annuity in the case. Whatever I may give them occasionally will be of far greater assistance than a yearly allowance, because they would only enlarge their style of living if they felt sure of a larger income, and would not be sixpence the richer for it by the end of the year. It will certainly be much the best way. A present of fifty pounds, now and then, will prevent their ever being distressed for money, and will, I think, be amply just discharging my promise to my father. To be sure it will. Indeed, to say the truth, I am convinced within myself that your father had no idea of your giving them any money at all. The assistance he thought of, I dare say, was only such as might be reasonably expected of you. For instance, such as looking out for a comfortable small house for them, helping them to move their things, and sending them presents of fish and game and so forth, whenever they are in season. I'll lay my life that he meant nothing further. Indeed, it would be very strange and unreasonable if he did. Do but consider, my dear, Mr. Dashwood, how excessively comfortable your mother-in-law and her daughters may live on the interest of seven thousand pounds. Besides, the thousand pounds belonging to each of the girls, which brings them in fifty pounds a year apiece. Of course, they will pay their mother for their board out of it. Altogether, they may have five hundred a year amongst them, and what on earth can four women want more than that? Yeah, it's such a... Uh precise, just like searing 
indictment indictment or illumination of human nature i yeah. really think because you, you know we're we're very good people we're very generous people and overall just very generous but sometimes these things come up where you're like i uh, you have an initial impulse like i want to help in this way and then you think about the financial realities of your own situation and then you're like oh god maybe not that much that's too much you know and yeah, then you yeah. kind of talk yourself down yeah. and it's exactly like that if you watch the film uh, Sense and Sensibility, the one from 1995, I believe, that was adapted by Emma Thompson, for which she won the Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay, and it's a it's a great adaptation of Sense and Sensibility, well directed by Ang Lee, and the scene they show this almost verbatim from the novel, brilliantly acted, brilliantly done, so funny. So that that's an example of what I'm talking about about how she uses dialogue in conjunction with free indirect style that really builds the internal worlds of these characters because these characters are really not main characters and really I don't think that they even have much to, they did they could be excised from the novel and the plot would not change at all you know you might say oh my my stepbrother didn't give us any money okay boom you didn't have to meet him or anything like that, or his wife, but it's so rich and so funny, and she, we know exactly how they tick just by this one scene, and it's so witty. Love that. She also doesn't explicitly indicate this or talk about it or anything, but the Dashwoods still have to, you know, be in relation to this brother who's well off. Maybe they don't know that he promised to her husband that he would help them or anything, but they do know that he could help them and he's not, and, but they have to maintain this careful balance even within the, their probably their own emotions of not disrupting that connection with him and keeping it well, together. Well, it's, it's like when you if you when you dislike your family. Okay, my yeah. example. I didn't like my family. Did not like my parents. My grandparents. I liked them more, but they really were difficult. My family was difficult. Yet I went to Thanksgiving every year. I went to Christmas every year. And, and there are millions upon millions of people who know exactly what this is like. And also. Honestly, there are a lot of people who go, go, I know I'm inheriting. I don't want to get on the wrong side of the old guy because I need yeah. that money. It's true. Even if it isn't a thought that's that specific, yeah. it's sort of like, here's somebody who holds power. They have a pocket of power and you don't want to run afoul of them because you might need their help someday. I mean, honestly, yeah, it's true. It's the truth. And that's not why I went to see my family because they weren't going to help me do anything. It's just, you know, it's also just that's what's expected. That's what you do. So anyway, they end up being in the in this cottage, the Dashwood ladies, and it's it sounds it sounds pretty nice to me. I guess by our standards today, by their standards, it was probably a little pokey and had a dark little hall and it's modest and modest yeah. and you know, but not not real nice. Maybe the chimney smoked, which is a problem. So they move in there and they meet Sir John. Sir John is Mrs. Dashwood's cousin, and this I think this again hilarious. He his he's a widow. No, in the movie he's a widower. He's got a wife and a couple children, and his mother-in-law lives with them. And he and his mother-in-law are best buds. They laugh, they joke, they get along like the best of friends. I mean, it is hilarious. And they love nothing more than being social and bringing young people in and talking about who has a crush on who and who might be, you know, just teasing and all of that. Yet at the same time, and this is one of the great ways in which she draw, uh, Austin draws characters, first of all, they're very annoying. They're super annoying because they're like, oh, they're so jolly, and they just don't seem to have be able to take the emotional temperature of the people they're with. Because the Dash would say, you really don't, the, the, the father just died fairly recently. Also, they're like very educated and artistic and everything. And, and these people are just like, if they had TV and they had football, yeah, they wouldn't be watching football on Sundays. No offense. Uh, <laughs> I mean, just hooting and having them, you know, yeah. great. I mean, they have a great time. We're looking at the Dashwoods who are more elite, but they're not having fun. Yeah. And these people... Having a great time. People that are, are very, very fun, but I didn't like them because they they didn't have any sense of emotional, taking emotional temper of what happened. But as the story progresses, what happens is you begin to see their fundamental kindness, their generosity, their caring, that they have real heart. Even if they don't have subtlety or a sense of maybe even sensitivity too much, they have real heart. And once it finally cracks through the head of uh, the mother-in-law that 
Marianne later on, if we talk about, is actually suffering, and she really is very, very upset. She's great because she has this balance. She's lived in the world, and she's really got a good temper. It's sort of like, it's like it's not the end of the world. On one hand, poor thing, poor thing. What can I do to, to help her, make her feel better? Sending up treats, you know, trying to, to figure out ways to make her feel better. When also she's like immediately on her side. And yes, she's like yeah, you know. F that guy. And yeah, yeah, yeah. He 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 really is no good. For, you know, yeah, no good Nick and all that. So you know they they grow on you and they end up being in the film just hilarious. I mean, I think they they were like the well, a bright spot for me. They made me laugh so much. And so again, present somebody who seem unlikable. Seem seem if not unlikable, they seem intolerable. Just oh, how annoying they are. And then as it goes on, you just like them more and more and more because they, the layers of who they are end up being revealed. And neither of these people is particularly deep, but Austin plums the depths that are there. She creates the depths that are there and then she plums them so that they really are like real people and probably happier than almost anybody else in the novel. Yeah. Because they're fine. So anyway, I did, I did enjoy those characters and that's another example. But if we get into the title of Sense and Sensibility, I think it's kind of interesting because the, the, the title is Sense and Sensibility, not Sense or Sensibility. Right. So, it, and same with Pride and Prejudice. So it's not like, in my opinion, that those two sides are being pitted against each other as, oh, sense is better than sensibility or whatever. What, what I see in both Eleanor and Marianne, who are the, you know, the two women who are involved in love triangles, is that they have both. But in Eleanor, sense, we'll call it sense, predominates. So she's much more driven and, and sort of ridden by the culture, by duty, the norms, what you do and what you don't do. You don't express your feelings in How public. to make the best of a situation, yeah. How to make the best of a situation instead of maybe taking action against it. Being authentic or, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So so it does squash your authenticity and you get the sense, and, and from the movie too, that she's, she's, she's repressed. So it's gotten to the point where it's like really uh, repressing her and she's in love with this uh, Edward Ferrars who, in the book, one of the few characters of Austin's that don't work for me. Uh, he's he's not in it very much, and he's just a big drip. Ugh, he's such a drip. Yeah, he doesn't really have any fleshed out personality. Yeah, he's yeah. just supposed to be a good guy. Yeah, yeah. He, he, has, he, has, he has the right principles. He's sort of an exemplar of the right principles. But is he? Because, again, this is a point, even though the character isn't very fleshed out, what happens is is when he was really young, he had promised to marry this low, lower-class woman. She was a daughter of his teacher, so she's in a class below him. He's landed gentry, or going to be when he her, his mother dies, because he's the eldest son. And so he promised this on the sly, somebody whose family would never approve of. And then he meets Eleanor, and he's like, oh, he, true love, right? But he can't tell her that he loves her. He can't offer to marry her because he's made this promise. He's got an engagement. And he can't break that engagement because that is not what you do. It's not the right thing in principle because he's higher class and somehow he would be compromising this woman by having had this secret engagement. I, And I think this is the part where you go, too much. The duty, the sense here is too much because it's not like this was publicly announced and she's going to be shamed. Nobody knows about it but them. Right. And she hasn't slept with them. So it isn't like she's lost her quote-unquote virtue. So he's overdone the action of duty. And then Eleanor, but she's like that. So she ultimately finds out about it and she honors him for it, even though she's suffering because of it because this guy she loves is not going to ever be able to marry her because he's got this pre-contract with somebody. So I, I just need to point out that they're alike in that way, and it shows that you can be too sensible. Also, I'm going to digress here a little bit about law, and that is, I do need to point out that one of the things that drives this uh, promise of his and the, the importance of it is that in those days, when you got, actually got engaged, you had to be really careful about getting engaged because getting engaged was considered to be a contract, as if you signed on a piece of paper. Mm. It's a contract, and that, if you've ever heard of being sued 
for alienation of affections, or uh, you, you could get sued for actually breaking an engagement, unless it was agreed by both sides. Wow. This wasn't a gendered thing. You could sue either party. Yeah. And normally the woman couldn't sue, but her family could. So essentially, um, of course, it's secret, but the idea that this is a contract, the principle of it, is uh, what drives Edward, not the actuality of it, even though it's just a bit much. So, um, so that's what's going on with their love triangle, and that's the sense part of it. Now, on the other side, we have Marianne, who's in her mid-teens. And Marianne, on principle, as well as inclination, believes you should be authentic at every moment, at every turn. It's like that kind of thing, like, I never lie. And so you tell your grandma when she gives you the cake and she's sitting there with her little bright eyes looking at you, sending you love with this cake. And, you, and she's, how is it, darling? And you taste it. And you go, it's pretty dry, Grandma. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You can't hide your feelings and you won't hold them back. And the other piece of that, too, is that she's very, as you mentioned before, artistic. And she loves film. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she, <laughs> she loves poetry and music and art and... Uh, requires, you know, uh, in a mate that they would have also good taste in these things. And good taste means equals her taste. Right. As, as it does for so many of us. But yeah, exactly. And, and the other thing is, is that this artistic thing, I think, I think in Marianne's own mind, she has, well, she's a teenager and this is what teenagers do. She's then equated it with these, basically these heroines in these novels. Yeah. Who are, I mean, we don't have the Brontes yet, but there were women who were going out on the moors. Gothic heroines, with, yeah. with wind blowing in their hair, no matter what the weather, doesn't matter if it's going to rain, and she's always going out in the rain and getting wet, but that shows her her wild, passionate heart. Right. So I think part of it is, is I won't say put on, it's not the quite quite the same thing. It's something that you, when you're trying to find yourself and who you are, uh, you, you try these Clo- yeah. these these clothes on and see if they fit and so this is uh, something she feels fits her and so it also matches with her her energy and her innocence and so forth but I find it I find it very funny because she's always running out and, and getting wet in the rain and and getting that's sick how, <laughs> and getting sick and that's how she meets the man of her dreams Willoughby Willoughby very handsome tall Dashing, Dashing, charming. And luckily in Sense and Sensibility, they, they cast a, an actor, Greg Weiss, Wise, who fits the bill perfectly. And he's also a good actor, so he plays the part well. And just as an aside, uh, he and Emma Thompson in real life ended up getting married and having a child, and they're still married today. Lovely. Yeah. There's nothing... Okay. It's annoying when a, a movie casts an actor who's, like, way too beautiful for the part, you know? And you're like, this person's supposed to be plain or whatever. Right. Um, but it's way worse when they cast a, someone who's supposed to be attractive with someone who is just not, not handsome, too old, like, whatever. Yeah, and, and even doesn't have a charming personality, which uh, in the version of Pride and Prejudice, the classic one that we adore. The BBC miniseries, yeah. Yeah, uh, that has the, the Wickham is supposed to be like the Willoughby, and he's just not. Yeah. I just can't. And so it makes it really <laughs> hard to see how Lizzie is so entranced by him. Yeah. Because you're like, I don't know. No. Sorry. <laughs> this weedy guy with mutton chops? No. They, they should have gotten Greg Wise. They should have yeah. cast him in both. Oh, my God. That I even told like, I get it. Yeah. You know? Uh, anyway, so back to Sense and Sensibility. So she's uh, rambling on the moor. She's drug, drug her Marianne little... Marianne is, yeah. Yeah, Marianne. She's drug her little sister Margaret out, who's probably like 12 or so, uh, to walk on this, this you know, windy, moorish, emotional landscape. And all of a sudden, it starts to pour rain, and Marianne falls down, and she breaks... Uh, twists her ankle. Twists her ankle. And uh, riding over the crest of the hill comes the man on horseback, and he sees her leaps off his horse, cape flapping, runs down to her. He says, if I may. And he's palpating <laughs> her ankle her ankle to see, okay, it's just sprained. And so he picks her up in his arms and is able to carry her all the way to the cottage. Which was pretty hot. Yeah, like, it's hot. Hot yeah. as can be. And then and then he comes in. And, and so, of course, that's love at first sight. And he has good taste in music and poetry, etc. Yeah. Now, part of that also is the fact that he is, as we later find out, 
He's a bit of a wastrel. He starts out by just wanting to toy with Marianne. He's kind of a, yeah, he's a libertine. Yeah, he just likes to get women to fall in love with him and, and possibly take advantage of them. Uh, although he probably never would have done that with Marianne because she's too well-connected. Too high status, yeah. yeah. But it's it's something for him to do. It's it's He's bored. Mm-hmm. And so he, he, you know, probably some of that was put on. But he, but he was able to quote one of her favorite, and he did happen to already have on him a little book of Shakespeare sonnets. So they really did have a lot in common. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, which he carries with him always, and that he gave to her, and so it's like oh, oh, and so she's all all a quiver over him, and uh, so that's the sensibility. So then, there, therefore, we have the two on each side lovers, uh, who are alike in character. And then what, what we have in terms of the, the triangle, if we go back to Eleanor and Edward, this Lucy Steele, who is the woman he promised his love to when he was a mere teenager. And I should point out he was living at his teacher's home. That's what they would do. He was like, so he, they were like, I don't know how many young men, four or five, six young men, kind of living there in a, like a dormitory-ish kind of thing. And there was his teacher. And what happened was he got to know Lucy and uh, after he graduated, he kind of stayed on because his mother didn't want him to go into the church, which is what he wanted to do. And he didn't he was, had time on his hands. So why not fall in love with Lucy, right? And so that's what happened there. And she is, and we, we can tell this immediately, she is practical. She's low class, doesn't have any money at all. When I say low class, I mean lower genteel class. Doesn't have any money, uh, you know, so she's trying to climb, social climb. And, you know, we spit on that, but why shouldn't she? Yeah, frankly. That's her one chance, right? Yeah, and I mean, she's got a, an attractive guy that's an option. like who's, so. gonna, who's going to actually inherit an estate right there at her fingertips. And so uh, she's got him uh, hooked, but we do pretty much get the sense that, that she doesn't love him. I mean, it seems pretty clear to me. So she meets uh, Eleanor, and then immediately, I think she'd heard about Eleanor and knows her as a rival, and so she immediately confides in her and is like, oh, I'm I'm engaged to Edward. Before she tells her that, she says, please, promise me, you won't tell anyone what I'm about to tell you, my secret. And Eleanor, of course, says yes, and then she says... That she's engaged to Edward, and so Eleanor's caught in this position where... Because of who she is, she has to respect Lucy Steele's commitment to Edward and like listen to her talk about him all the time. And, and, and Lucy it, Steele seems to be rubbing it in more than she really loves uh, Edward. Well, also, the thing is, is Eleanor has to pretend, even though it, it, it's understood between them that, that they are rivals, Eleanor completely pretends that she has no interest in Edward at all to everybody, pretty much. And so she, she again, it's that sense you don't you don't say how you feel. It's the opposite of Marianne, who would be all over it. And she's telling everybody how much she, I don't know if she says how much she loves Edward, but how enthusiastic, Willoughby, yeah. I'm sorry, uh, constantly, you know, like they're out riding together and she's always excited when she sees him and she's like, always expresses herself with such, ah. that in itself is a statement of her interest in him. And it's lacking propriety. Yes. She does it too much. Um, and she's doing things with him that you would do if you were engaged to him. Like she's, she's, he's taking her to his house to show her around. And that in itself is a, a big, big deal. And it indicates that they must have some sort of secret engagement or they have an understanding, mm-hmm. which means that they, they have an, an agreement that they will become engaged. So that's all going on at the same time. And then basically there's this other character on Marianne's triangle who's Colonel Brandon. And Colonel Brandon is, he's older, he's probably like 10, 11 years older than she is. And he, in his young days, he had a young love who was just like Marianne, and his family wouldn't let him marry her. They forced her to marry, is his brother, I think? or No, it's just some horrible guy. Some horrible rich guy. She was forced to marry him, and she couldn't, he was hor- so horrible, she had to get a divorce, which was very unusual. And so she ended up basically being on the streets, and uh, men took advantage of her, and uh, when uh, Brandon came back into the country, apparently he was off serving in the army or something, he, f- he found her, 
And she, of course, she's ruined. So, of course, now he can't marry her because she's ruined. When she's on her deathbed. Well, that's right. She was on her deathbed. So he couldn't, he couldn't, couldn't marry, marry her anyway. <laughs> but she had a child that he ended up becoming the, the guardian to. He said he'd become her guardian. And so Marianne reminds him of this lost love because he's never married. And I have a little problem with Colonel Brandon because he walks in, he claps eyes on Marianne, and that's it. He's in love. And I just don't buy it. That, that it's real love. Resemblance isn't really a good enough reason to have everyone be like, wow, he's such an honorable. This you is know. true love, you know, kind of thing. And so he just stays in the background while she's whooping it up with Willoughby. And, of course, Brandon is both sense and sensibility mixed together. He does his duty absolutely. He takes care of this child. He uh, tries to protect her, even though he actually kind of doesn't in the end, because... Uh, Willoughby. Turns out the connection between the two of them is that Willoughby got together with this girl that Colonel Brandon's the guardian of and ruined her. So I think something Colonel Brandon only learns later. Yeah. And then he, you know, has to, wishes he could have been the protector of Marianne and stuff. Right. And and he then tells the family and they then know what Willoughby is. But uh, essentially uh, Brandon, but Brandon also, well actually he doesn't in the book. In the movie, they make him more sense and sensibility. That's right. In the book, he's just sense. I think the in the book, the sensibility that he has is just that he's a romantic. You know, yeah. it's his romanticism. Like he buys a harpsichord for Marianne and stuff. Yeah. So he's you know he's he's tender. He he you know he cares about what she likes and stuff like that. In the movie, they make him they give him more where he's he he actually reads poetry with feeling. Yeah, and this is uh this is played by Alan Rickman. This role in the movie. And I'm sorry to say to Alan Rickman fans, and I am an Alan Rickman fan. I do love Alan, uh, some Alan Rickman, but he is just not good in this role. It's too bad. He's he's not he's not creating the. Upon rewatching it, we remembered him as very long suffering and kind of noble and sad and stuff. But then upon rewatching it, he just didn't project much of anything. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, it just just didn't work very well. But he's great when he's reading poetry, so. Yeah, he did do do a good job with that. So, yeah, so essentially that that is sense and sensibility. Are there any other themes that we wanted to touch on on this particular book? I don't know that there are because it was very interesting to read and I think most of the rest of what we could talk about it is really comparing it to Pride and Prejudice. Right. And right, which we which we will do. Let's let's slip into Pride and Prejudice, which is and actually, let's do that in the next part. Oh, wow. This is going to be a three-parter. Yeah. Dang. <laughs> Dang it. Okay. Well, well, we'll sign off now, gang, and we will get back with Pride and Prejudice next epi. Join us next time for all the reasons why Pride and Prejudice uh, is uh, taking what Jane Austen started in Sense and Sensibility to the next level. And we'll also talk about movie and other adaptations of these books. Give you some recommendation for some great fanfic. Okay, so I commissioned mom to, uh, as you know, she read these books out loud to me, and I commissioned her to read a short passage as a treat for all of us. Because I love her Lucy Steele uh, voice so much. Lucy Steele being the uh, rival of Eleanor. Eleanor blushed for the insincerity of Edward's future wife and replied, This compliment would effectually frighten me from giving my opinion on the subject had I formed one. It raises my influence much too high. The power of dividing two people so tenderly attached is too much for an indifferent person. "'Tis because you are an indifferent person,' said Lucy with some pique, and laying a particular stress on those words, "'that your judgment might justly have such weight with me. "'If you could be supposed to be blessed in any respect by your own feelings, "'your opinion would not be worth having.'" <laughs> oh, I just love that so much. In, in the book, Lucy's supposed to be a very attractive young woman. And I don't know why you chose this deep voice for her character, but I just imagine her as like a gorilla in a dress. <laughs> well, it's funny because I was thinking of an actor who, uh, God, what is her name? I'm going to look it up for you. Oh, Joan Greenwood. I was thinking of an actor named Joan Greenwood who was uh, probably, she's British, from like 
oh, like the 50s, 40s, 50s, 60s maybe. Uh, she was mostly a stage actor, but she was in like a version of The Importance of Being Earnest play oh. that was filmed like, it's actually pretty good, back in the 60s. And she kind of has that voice. The husky voice. Yeah, yeah. She was in uh, a lot of the Ealing Studio, or not a lot, but she was in some of the Ealing Studios movies. Oh, see, I had no idea. Yeah. I thought you just arbitrarily decided. No, for some reason that came to mind. And she's an attractive woman. She's like a petite, attractive woman. But she talks like this. But she's got this particular crack in her voice that I can't really quite do. <laughs> well, there you go. So check out, what's her name? Joan Greenwood. Joan Greenwood, if you want to uh, see the inspiration for that little characterization. If you want to get in touch with us, shoot us out an email to fueblespodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Thank you.